everybody that this may be your first time logging on. This is Brian and Luke Sheely of the Sheely Law Firm here in Columbia, South Carolina, also located in Charleston, South Carolina. My name is Hannah. I work for these two. Um, this is our live podcast, vodcast that we do uh, live on TikTok, and then the videos are uploaded again to YouTube uh, following. It's called Bring the Jury, uh, coined after uh, Judge Cliff Newman himself and one of his favorite quotes. Um, bring the jury. Bring the jury. We are just going to go ahead and dive right in. Obviously, when we left you guys last night, um, there was no verdict, and a lot has happened since then. But we were somewhat intoxicated. <laughs> Minimally. Slightly. Two, we were two beers deep. Two beers. I was one. Two large guests. Mm. And one, one normal guest. And one normal guest. <laughs> but yeah, so we tried to drown out. Uh, well, <laughs> never mind. Go ahead. I'll let you guys go ahead. Well, yeah, we left you guys, and then we did our normal um, Thursday night hangout amongst our defense lawyer friends, and the verdict came back, and we were all pretty stunned about how relatively quick it was. I mean, you got a almost six-week trial, and you had about a three-hour verdict, and we're hearing that it was nine were guilty, two were not guilty, and one was undecided at first. So they really convinced the other three within about three hours. And, you know, it's fascinating in the back of the, in the deliberation rooms, how they do that, whether it's through kind persuasiveness or sometimes we see jurors come out of that room and they clearly are emotional. They look like they've been in a fight. They look like they've been crying. Hard to say. We might hear more as jurors decide to speak out or not, but it was, uh, we both called it that if, if a, a verdict was returned that same day, it was very bad news for uh, Alec Murdoch, and that proved to be the case. And Judge Newman, as we've been in front of him, typically does like to sentence right away, but given that it was late, and obviously we've got media involved and other folks that may want to speak, he did um, schedule a formal kind of separate sentencing hearing today, but we were, uh, it was quite interesting tonight, how, or last night, how quick it was. And not going to be a good thing if it was. Yeah, and just regarding the sentencing hearing, in case people are unfamiliar with that, I mean, normally you hear from lots of family members, you may hear from people, you know, kind of character witnesses, that kind of thing, and you're essentially advocating for what you want. The state, as we saw through Creighton Waters, you know, asked for a, a consecutive life sentence. Um, and then no one from the defense side had anything to say. And that is extremely abnormal. Um, and normally that's the toughest thing that we as trial lawyers have to do, the toughest moment we will ever have. It's not cross-examining a very savvy you know, law enforcement witness. It's not delivering an amazing closing and, and working up to that real emotional moment with the jury and connecting the toughest thing is giving your all and it not being enough and uh, having to get there and beg for mercy from a judge for your client who, you know, sometimes you really like clients, sometimes you hate your clients, but you always have a, a job to do um, for the system to work. And even if you don't have a real strong relationship with your client, you know, it's a, it's a battle, it's a war, you're fatigued, you're emotionally drained. And so 
then you have to get up there and do the hardest thing, which is knowing a jury has found your client guilty, knowing a judge is ready to pass a sentence, is to ask for that mercy. In a case like this, with so much other information before the judge about all the other crimes, I mean, they didn't do any of that. They didn't, you know, no one brought up Buster to, to beg for his dad not to go down. No one did any of that. So, and maybe they felt it was kind of futile, um, that they just, they knew what was gonna happen. I mean, Luke and I both were certainly convinced it was gonna be a life sentence. You know, murder, you know, Judge Newman could have given him just 30 years. But we always felt that this type of case with this kind of high profile was gonna be a life sentence. Um, you know, consecutive life sentence, it doesn't affect his time structure at all. It's still life, but, you know, just kind of puts a stamp of how the judge really feels about the matter. Mm. Um, but no one, no one did what they normally do and gets up and tries to mitigate. So I don't know if that was strategic or just everyone was worn out or so upset. I mean, we are hearing that, you know, some reporting from some very credible sources in, in Walterboro that, um, you know, both sides of the family are convinced that he didn't do it, including Maggie's side. Um, there's some, there's a couple crime network reporters that are talking to the family, and that's that's the response they're getting, which is fascinating. I mean, I, I kind of would expect it from some of, you know, maybe Alex Murdoch's brothers and certainly Buster, but some of Maggie's family we're hearing in the last 30 minutes are, are expressing that they're they were not certain if he did it or not, and then after all of the evidence is out, they don't believe he did it. So maybe that's why there's no discussion and sentencing. So, what do you think, Luke? Yeah, I've been I've been really upset with no one speaking on behalf of Alec Murdoch. And again, it's the toughest thing at sentencing, but the range is 30 to life. So you have a job to do. I mean, we had that double murder we've been referencing with Judge Newman in December of last year, we got one not guilty on a murder and, and were found guilty on the other. And we had to sit there and advocate for our client who testified. And the jury clearly found him guilty on the one murder, but we also had to explain what was good about him. Let's talk to you about his family, his children, the people that love him and ask for a particular sentence. And I think under a normal situation, you could certainly say this is, you know, Judge Newman Buster's here. He's a victim, he lost his mom, he lost his brother. Now he's about to, his dad has been out of, out of his life for a while in terms of being able to interact with him other than a phone call from a jail, but you're gonna send him away. The question is, for Buster's sake, as a child who's lost everybody, and he's a young man, he's not a child, but he is Murdoch's child. Um, what would be a sentence that would help him move forward? And, you know, because if you give someone a life sentence, a lot of times they get pretty despondent in prison, and really they'll misbehave or they'll, you know, something, they'll just kind of fail to thrive. And a lot of judges really believe in giving a sentence that does provide some hope at the end, even if it means like you're a really old man. Um, and that could be seen as something that would be helpful for Buster. And so I, I was shocked that no one said anything. And the more I think about it. I'm wondering if it is some type of PCR ploy. You know, what, Luke, explain what PCR yeah. means for a lot of people that don't know what that is. So if after you get convicted, you have two bites of the apple. One is an appeal, and that says a judge made a mistake. He allowed in evidence that should have been allowed. 
you know, he made mistakes with the law, and clearly that will be done in this case, whether it's successful or not. And then you have a separate avenue called post-conviction relief, where your challenge is against your own lawyers. You say, you know what, they were ineffective. They failed to object about something. They failed to investigate something I told them. Um, and that's a pretty hard thing you know, lawyers to be bad and not great, but it doesn't allow them to be woefully inadequate. Never investigated a claim. But here, I mean, there's things in the record that we pointed to for a PCR that the defense lawyers opened the door to letting in, particularly the assisted suicide evidence. It's highly prejudicial. There's tons of case law on it. And it was kept out. It was a win for the defense at first, but as soon as Jim Griffin said the word Cousin Eddie Smith, even though he was referring to some financial aspects that the state had already addressed, they jumped up, the state said, and you opened the door, and, and Judge Newman agreed. So that's a slam dunk PCR where it could be reviewed and say, well, had that evidence not come in, you wouldn't have heard all that terrible stuff, and whose fault is it? It's Jim Griffin. So I'm just wondering if they're realizing that that's going to be a, a potentially successful avenue to get a new trial and almost by not even advocating for a sentence that they can also say, well, that's something too. Um, so they might be trying to help him in a, in a way. So we'll see, but it's highly unusual. On the worst of the worst cases, as hard as it, as it is, the defense lawyers have to speak and ask for a sentence and it's tough. So to see nothing being said, but then a press conference after the fact was very, very baffling to me. It must be something like that. Yeah, I mean, if you're not if you're not going to advocate for your client on sentencing, which it would be, even if you feel it's kind of pointless because you know the judge is going to, I mean, you you see the writing on the wall, um, and then you get out there and you talk about all the things why you know the trial went, didn't go your way or how you know you feel your client didn't do this or whatever it may be, you're talking at the wrong time. Um, I could, you know, if you didn't say anything and sentence him because you're too distraught or whatever, and then you don't have hold a press conference. Okay, that's consistent. But so, I, yeah, I think it must be strategic. It, it must be. it must be to help pad the post conviction relief file on the the two bites of the apple scenario. Um. So yeah, we we've seen his mugshot already from South Carolina Department of Corrections. You know, it's the policy of the Department of Corrections to shave your head right away. Um, he'll be at Kirkland uh, being assessed. Kirkland is the facility, the name of the facility um, for the Department of Corrections where they evaluate you to kind of figure out your classification. He'll, he will be classified in a certain way as a high kind of category offender based on the charge itself and the fact that it carries a life sentence. So typically they don't allow people that are you know, have life sentences to be housed with people that have like a one-year drug charge. Um, they're typically in their own kind of special housing situation. Um, and then Murdoch himself is going to go into the Department of Corrections as one of the most high-profile inmates in, in its history. And so I, I would imagine they're not going to just throw him out into the general population on a yard. You know. He's going to be, a, he will always be a target. He'll be a target for extortion. Notoriety. He'll be a target for murder. He'll be a target for worse, thing, worse <laughs> things than that. Yeah. So they're going to have to keep him um, in some kind of protective custody situation, most likely for the rest of his time there. 
the prison doesn't really like to talk about that because they don't want it to really be made known that there is kind of a special protective custody, but we've had one client get in it before where it's really like the Shangri-La. I mean, you, I don't know, I'm not saying he's going to get great treatment, but it is so protected that you do have a little more flexibility and you can actually be shipped to other prisons out of state. And I think you'd have to get out of state to really kind of be safe because any inmate on any high level yard, they're all watching this. They've got strong feelings and, and they're bored. And also he's a generational family prosecutor. So like there's gonna be tons of people in prison doing life sentences that his, your your daddy that his dad put, put in me there. away for life. Your it's you know crazy. granddaddy did that and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take right. vengeance on you. I mean, it's, uh, he's gonna have to get shipped out of state someplace like Iowa and you know so let's talk about the importance of keeping your mouth shut when oh. the officials arrive. What what could have been different about this case? I mean, I know that during an interview with the news, one of the jurors said that they pretty much had decided the moment that the Snapchat video came out and contradicted Alex's story that he was napping and that he wasn't at the kennels, that that was pretty much the nail in the coffin. And that is all that that's all knowledge because he agreed to uh, cooperate and have conversations, interviews with police. You just can't do it. I mean, even if you're stone cold innocent, don't do it. The, the murder of your wife and son and you're the one that calls police, don't do it. And maybe he was high. Maybe he felt that he uh, with a prosecutor background and legacy that he could be fine, but Luke and I in our practice s shut down interviews all day long. I mean, it's the rare interview that I will allow on a murder case or, or uh, any case. You just don't do it because every, you can, I say this repeatedly, you can't tell the same story the same way twice, even if you're saying the same content. You, there may be an inflection of your voice that a prosecutor jumps on, you know, four years down the road and and we saw Creighton Waters effectively pointing out what he called a tick of Alex Murdoch, where he rocks when he's emotional. And Creighton kind of said very cleverly, that's not emotion, that's a lie. So let's just tell, like in a poker game, I've got him figured out. And we had, you know, one night of interview in a car recorded, sec you, know, you know, as a calling 911 and, you know, okay. Then you had the second one in the car with a lawyer present, Jim Griffin. No, don't ever do that. Uh, he's recounting what happened. You're gonna have that third interview where he's supposed to be checking in with how's this, how's the case going with Agent Owen, which really was a trap and an interrogation and a did you kill your family moment at the very end. That was, I mean, yeah, it was Corey Fleming was his lawyer, who's now disbarred and facing his own criminal charges. You just don't do that. Experienced trial lawyers that handle murder cases don't allow their client to be interviewed. And then you had the, the rehab interview, which was a confession to another crime. Yeah, 100% agree with Brian. And, and in terms of the way this case was shaped out, 
I mean, he's close. He would have, had he not given any statement, had he just simply said, guys, I'm so distraught. I'm very emotional. I just can't talk right now. Y'all, I want to help. Just send any question you might have through my lawyers. Just, gosh, you know, I need to go grieve. I need to be with my family. I've got funerals to plan. And if, if he had literally shut it down, and, and that's his right. And it's also, you don't really want to start talking to anybody when you're grieving, emotional, distraught. You're not going to be a good historian. But if, if none of those statements had been in evidence in this case, then they can't say he's lying when the when the kennel video comes out. Mm. And if you, even if all the financial crimes comes in and ultimately they, they see that he is a bad guy who steals from his clients, okay, you still... There's a point in time called a directed verdict where the state rests and the judge says, okay, have they proven enough to get to a jury? Should I let this case get to a jury? And it's, it's a standard that's based, is there any direct evidence or substantial circumstantial evidence? And so direct evidence is eyewitness, saw him do it, or we found this, literally the smoking gun in his pocket, um, things like that. Circumstantial, substantial circumstantial means it's literally what we had in this case when he initially lied. All right? So if we didn't have that lie, and ultimately it was revealed that he was down there really close in time, well, you haven't, you don't have that suspicion that he's done something nefarious because there's no lie about it. It's just he, he could testify and be like, wow, you know what? People must have been waiting for me to leave. They must have been at the roadside um, gosh, are you serious? Like, they were killed moments after I left? Wow, it must have been like they were waiting for me to leave. So, like, he's not a busted liar. He's just like, so I think legally he could have won on directed verdict had he not lied, had he not talked to the police. And this is just the objectiveness. Of, you know, everybody has strong feelings. I'm not saying that I wish he had gotten away with murder and all that. I'm just saying from a legal standpoint, when you don't have that, those inconsistencies and lies to be busted on by running your mouth, then you don't have that terrible evidence against you. And any defendant, whether it's Alex Murdoch or the most innocent person in the whole damn world, then you're in much better footing for your trial. Yeah, so talk about like discovery and when you have to submit all evidence so that both sides are privy to the information that will be presented how that would have kind of transpired in this case had Alex not, you know, given a lie. Well, I guess talk our viewers through, like, what, what discovery is, what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, discovery is, you know, what we call the evidence in the case. So on a murder investigation, you got a lot more of it typically than a random theft or a burglary. But, yeah, the... You know, basically once a lawyer or a law firm enters a case, they send out what's called a discovery request under our evidence rule, rule five, um, asking for anything that's relevant and material in the case that prosecution is gonna use. Um, so that would be any witness statements, uh, investigative reports, investigative summaries, any forensic testing done. The forensic uh, results normally come later you normally get initial witness statements like the in-car uh, video, audio material, the first responding officers reports, their body camera footage. And then in this case, you would have gotten, you know, DNA testing, 
you know, forensic type testing later on and any, any special additional testing, you know, in preparation for trial is going to be like really the last thing you get, but you, you got to turn that over. Technically, you know, the rule says fairly quickly, there's no, no teeth to that, you know, like 90 days, there's no real teeth to any of that stuff um, in terms of timing for discovery or indictment. I mean, so, but then, the, then that allows the defense to respond, you know, if they want to investigate or hire their own experts, as we had in this case, um, you know, if they're going to have an alibi defense, you know, so any kind of reports or that kind of thing that the defense uses, you know, if they're going to put it up in their case in chief, typically, you know, they may not write a report because then you got to turn that over if you're going to have an expert testify. I think we saw that a good bit for the defense. It's all very strategic. Um, and, and from our perspective, you, as a good defense lawyer, especially on a major case, you can't really formulate your strategy for defending the case until you have all the evidence. Because you don't want to like commit someone, because lawyers are officers of the court. As much as you've heard terrible things about Alex Murdoch, we take oaths to not lie to a court. So that means we can also never put up our client to testify knowing he's going to lie. So we don't want to hear from our client about what he did or didn't do for a long time, unless it's just obvious. For example, if you don't have all the evidence in this case and you start saying, all right, Murdoch, cool. So you're not there. You hadn't seen him in two hours and tell me about that. And, oh shit. Oh snap. You've got this. You've got this. Uh, you're going to get us banned. I'm going to get us banned. I'm sorry. Then you're like, oh you no. You curse once a podcast. Once sorry. But then you're like, oh no, I'm That is the bad Chile, that's the good Chile. We'll get into that later. But then you're like, oh no, the Snap Snapchat puts you down there. Oh, we got some splitting. So you don't want to commit really in any substantial way until you know what evidence there is against you. Um, but that is discovery. And then there's certain rules that do apply to the defense, but not really as many. You have to share things that you're gonna enter into your case in chief. So if your expert does a report that 100% says due to this scientific data, you know, like with uh, Mike Sutton, um, this report says that this trajectory based on this formula shows that the shooter had to be 5-2. Well, then you have to produce it at some point prior to entering it in your case in chief to the state. But it doesn't, there's not, you know, and then because you, you don't want, if they get that report, they might want to respond to that report by having their own expert look at it. So. That's why you don't see a lot of reports written by defense witnesses. You basically, they formulate opinions and, and discuss it with you internally, but you're not exactly looking to give them ample opportunity. I mean, the defense doesn't have anything to prove. We have no burden. So that's why we're picking apart the state's case, but, but that's discovery. Um, certain things have timelines. If you file an alibi notice, as the, as the defense did in this case, that means literally you are saying that you, your client was elsewhere during the commission of the crime. And we heard Judge Newman talk about that today in sentencing. You have to provide that you know, no later than 10 days before trial. And so here that was done. And I think Judge Newman kind of chastised that and said you basically had the audacity to file that saying you were elsewhere. And then of course the forensic evidence, the digital evidence puts you there just right around the time of the killing. So. How dare you, you lying liar, is essentially what he was saying to Alex Murdoch today. Um, so that's a little bit on discovery and the back and forth. It's, it's totally different from a civil case in which there's tons of sharing. And then I always cringe when lawyers end up in discovery. 
when you had lawyers, I mean, here we had a number of interviews by Alec Murdoch with lawyers and even lawyers that represented him in this trial or right beside him. That's cringeworthy to me. You know, lawyer, you never want a lawyer to be a witness. You can't, under the rules, you can't both be lawyer and witness in a case. And so, like, for example, we had Jim Griffin kind of debating some, uh, there was an agent that said that, um, yeah, it was the done them bad aspect. We done them bad versus I done them bad. And so you have, you know, Jim Griffin could have set the record straight. He was a witness to that conversation. So in closing, which he's allowed to argue, he was like, he did not say that. He did not say that, but like, he's baked into this case, which is troubling. Um, he was also referenced in the state's closing by something he said in the HBO interview, which is why Humbly, we would submit that you never do TV interviews in the middle of your double murder case because some, you never know. You might say something that you regret later. There's plenty of time to do interviews afterwards. But you don't want to be a witness in your own case. You really don't. So we have uh, one viewer in particular who is very adamant that I ask you guys about the DNA um, on Maggie, the, the under the fingernails, the hair. Um, I guess can we can we talk more about that and like, you know, maybe why that wasn't brought up more, why that wasn't tested more. Do you guys have any insight on that? Well, DNA was interesting, and I don't even recall Jim Griffin bringing up the DNA in closing. And I got he did talk about the hair. Yeah, but like so, her. She had a small amount of DNA under her left fingernail, which is consistent with touching somebody. Maybe, I mean, she didn't have any defensive wounds. She wasn't in an all-out fight, but she had enough cells under her left hand from touching to be interesting. And it was not Murdoch. The way DNA is done these days is through a very complex kind of star mix analysis, which basically sets up propositions and in this case, everybody was ruled out, and but it was you had the closest proposition of anybody that submitted a sample that could be compared. And so they got samples from anybody and everybody that might have been around her, even to the groundskeeper, C.B. Rowe. And amongst the propositions, his was like the, the closest of all the knowns, the samples, but it was much more likely as a proposition that that was some unknown, unidentified male, which means it was somebody totally different. Now, I don't know if it was the guy who did her Manny Petty, you know, or somebody she shook hands with, or the killer. <laughs> so, but, but the point that the defense was trying to make was that that wasn't tested thoroughly enough. There's a, a national database called CODIS that anybody that is a criminal or has a, an opportunity to submit DNA, whether that's voluntarily, or if you get booked in on a felony, you have to give DNA sometimes. Um, if you've been convicted of certain crimes, you know, they didn't put it in that database. If that had pinged off a database of, let's just say it was cousin Eddie Smith, oh my gosh, your case is totally yeah. different. And the state was well, saying, right, I mean, the state was saying, well, it was such a small amount that it really didn't rise to the level that we typically put in against the test against the database. But it's like, you could have, you should have, but you didn't. And that was kind of part of the theme of all the stuff they did not do. And on that note of testing, 
Yeah, I mean, the defense kind of made a point, like you could have sent it to CODIS, couldn't you, uh, Agent Worley? And she was like, well, the allele sample was too small for our SLED policies, and SLED has a, a manual that big on their policies for us to send it on. And he said, well, you could have though, right? Yeah. I mean, Luke and I once had a very high profile murder case in front of Judge Newman about a decade ago. It was, I'm sure it will be the subject of a future podcast, but <laughs> um, in that case, we were blaming the murder on a very specific person. And the victim in that case was very probably sexually assaulted and then strangled to death. And then her apartment was set on fire. And there's a lot of crazy things happening, but she had her her rape kit, her SANE kit, where they, they you know, do a sexual assault analysis. The, the DNA sample taken from that was mysteriously removed from the evidence locker. And so it then was mysteriously brought back six months later, inexplicably. And we didn't have any DNA testing, but we had a, a bead on who we, our investigation led us to be the killer. And I made a motion to compel the testing of that DNA evidence by law enforcement um, before the trial, because I was like a dog with a bone on that issue. And they, I had a judge, a circuit court judge, uh, order that they test it, but law enforcement got really cute with that. They, they said, okay, we'll test it. And so they tested it to make sure it was the same. All they did was they didn't test it against anybody in CODIS. They didn't test it against anybody specifically. They did a really kind of very narrow type of DNA testing just to confirm that it was female DNA versus like a male from the rape kit. So basically they confirmed it was somebody's rape kit, but they didn't do any of their testing like that. And then they threw a $3,000 bill at us. So, I mean, you can- Which we tore up. Which we tore up <laughs> into a thousand pieces. But so you can do motions like that. Now this case was tried very quickly. I mean, I mean extremely quick. From the time the murder case was brought, I mean, and that was a, that's typically a defense strategy by Dick Harputlian is to like always keep the state on their feet. They can file a speedy trial. Yeah, I mean, that's always a strategy to keep them under the gun and, and hopefully not be as prepared. But in the state grand jury investigation, they're always going to be more prepared than you because they've, they've already been gathering and building a case. It's very much akin to a federal investigation. It's not just like a random investigator is investigating a murder and says, all right, I think I have probable cause. Let me go ahead and slap a warrant on somebody and let, let the prosecution figure it out. This was always a, an investigation that was the brainchild of Creighton Waters. And he was, he was directing the investigation along with SLED. And so it, they were very prepared to prosecute this thing when they brought these warrants. Um, so obviously Alec Murdoch is an infamous liar. And that was, you know, what this case really wrote on was that, you know, he lies, he lies, he lies, he's lying to you. He's got his, you know, all, you know, so on and so forth. Why, why wasn't a lie detector test ever given? Well, it could have been, Okay. it, it may have been, but he would never submit like, Sled likes, they have polygraph machines right there at, at headquarters. I've had a client on a couple of those. But in this case, he would probably never submit to law enforcement's polygraph machine 
because number one, it is an interrogation tool. Just as a general rule of thumb, lie detector tests are not admissible in a court of law to prove that you are not being truthful. It's not like DNA science. The science of, of polygraphs um, are not deemed to be rigorous enough to be reliable. However, law enforcement agencies all across the nation have polygraph examiners. Number one, the main reason it's a very good interrogation tool. If you've got a suspect who's like, man, I'm innocent. What are you talking about? And they go, all right, get on this box and we'll see what it says. I'm like, okay. And then regardless of what it says, that officer says, it says you're lying, man. <laughs> you got some explaining to do, and that, that will frequently crack somebody, particularly if they are lying. Um, but law enforcement does believe in polygraphs, and so it, under the rare occasion that you pass one of theirs, they might take a, a, a kind view, and you might get some traction with your case. In this case, it had so much political pressure that it probably was never going to happen. Now, you can privately polygraph your own client. We frequently do that. And we use retired law enforcement officers who have as much credibility as possibility as possible. But when you do it in the confines of your own office, if a client passes a test on the critical issue of did you kill Paul, did you kill Maggie, then you take that and that report and you go run in the prosecutor and go, hey man, you need to listen to me. I've used Joe X cop and he's you know used to work with you guys for twenty years. He he thinks he's being truthful, so when I tell you that his alibi is good, you should give me some credit. Let's work this out. But if your client fails and you just ball it up and you throw it in the trash and you say, well, we tried, and you don't really have anything to convince law enforcement with. So it's, it's not admissible in a court of law. And in this case, you know, the information that we have is that they did polygraph Cousin Eddie on whether or not he killed Maggie and Paul, and he failed it. I mean, that's quite interesting. <laughs> so that was part of SLED's investigation, that he failed their polygraph in that regard. Um, now, that never made it into the trial because never, Eddie never got near the courtroom for whatever reason. I got lots of theories on that. but And you never heard any defense lawyer try to challenge and question the lead investigator on that, likely because potentially it's admissible, but... Most likely it's not because it's not like, you know, that can be used. There are certain scenarios where I think we even had Judge Newman talk to us about certain examples of when he thinks a polygraph could be used, but it had probably already been ruled upon. They couldn't just sling some mud at Cousin Eddie without him being able to defend himself. So, um, let's see, what was the next question? Um, so what, what happens now with the boat case? I mean, well, it certainly got a lot of attention. You still have obviously Paul dead. You have a decimated estate from Alex Murdoch. His old law office is owed a bunch of money. But um, I think Mark Tinsley is not the type of lawyer that's going to give up on anything. I think he will still pursue justice on behalf of Mallory Beach's family. Um, it doesn't, it's certainly in the world, he was, if he, he testified that he was worried that when Paul died with so much sympathy in that area, it would be really hard to get a jury to return a verdict. Well, now you have rage and hate, and the Murdoch family has really been ostracized. So it might be that he feels that a jury will pile on some money, but 
there's a lot of debtors lining up to try to get their their money out of that family and that estate, and it's very complex. So I think it will it will continue to go um, and be resolved at some point. I imagine it'll be covered quite extensively. Yeah. Um, but it's all about finding assets, and so. You know, Alec Murdoch doesn't have any assets. He's not going to be able to profit off of this trial in, in any way in SDBC. You know, there are laws on that. Um, so oh, talk more about that, because yeah. I mean, so we talked about this uh, last night. You know, there'll be like these movie deals, book deals, all all this different stuff that comes out, um, and Alec would, you know, be able to make earnings off of that for likeness. But now, well, I, I've been doing a little bit of research, brief research, and there's something called the um, Son of Sam Law, which, you know, is kind of referencing a notorious killer that profited off his conviction and trial and the fame and notoriety off of that. But, you know, it's my understanding in South Carolina that we do have a, a limiting, like, it's almost like a seizure law that if you're making money and profits off of your story, um, that that would you'd be barred from profiting off that period, and so um, that's my understanding of how it works. It's you would not personally go to profit; you would have your assets stripped, um, and it's kind of a non-starter. Now, it doesn't mean that people associated with Alex Murdoch couldn't potentially make money, maybe on his behalf. I mean, he's got a large family; they're going to be, you know, they've got liability. Um, on certain civil cases, um, I mean, maybe Buster's got some liability. We had a, we were on a national podcast earlier today, and some viewer had a question about, you know, is Buster going to be in trouble? Apparently, he gave Paul the fake ID that Paul was then allowed oh. to buy beer that got him intoxicated that would have resulted in the boat crash. And is he going to be held criminally responsible? And I said, no, not, I don't think criminally, but because I mean, there is a 30 day misdemeanor charge in South Carolina for, you know, fake ID kind of possession and probably something of, of letting someone use your, your ID, but he may have some civil liability there. Um, but any family member could do an exclusive interview, could talk about you know, I've had conversations with my brother, my dad, and he tells me he's innocent from prison, and here's why we, Here's why the family thinks he's innocent, and potentially that could generate income that could help, you know, the family and not necessarily be attached to any litigation. Um, but Paul Tinsley is extremely intelligent. I don't think he's going to... Mark Tinsley. Mark Tinsley. I don't think he's going to have a problem finding assets. Um, and he'll, he'll, he'll sniff out the money, so... Um, what what's going to happen with Officer Owen and for lying to the grand jury? Would that be grounds for appeal? Would he? It is be potentially because that indictment it was revealed was obtained through two different lies: one about blood spatter, one about the way the guns were kept in that house to be consistent with the Paul. Um, buckshot and turkey loads, which was a lie. And I honestly felt there was so much room to really grill him over it. And ultimately, Jim Griffin kind of just said, well, you want to call it a, misunder <coughs> a misunderstanding, a mistake, and then we can all agree people make mistakes, such as my client with his memory of things. I would have been like, you swore an oath to the grand jury, you lied to them twice on purpose, you swore an oath today, <coughs> 
Are you lying now to them? Because you lied, you lied to them then behind closed doors. Wait, so how do we know that you're not lying now? And that would have been a massive part of my closing. I think you probably will always and forever have this. I don't know whether Sled will reprimand him or do anything. I just don't know. But he will always have this <coughs> as a stick to beat him with. In any case he ever testifies in, he's revealed as a liar based on this to juries. Yeah, I think his role with Slay will be severely diminished by either being so reckless in the truth before the grand jury or outright lying to the grand jury. I think uh, very privately Sled will deal with him and I think he'll find his way in a corner office someplace behind a desk. Uh, you know, how close is he to retirement age? I don't think he's gonna be testifying in front of the jury ever again. I think he's, he now has too much baggage I mean, if Luke and I ever saw him on the other side of the case, again, we'd have plenty to work with. We're looking at our chops. Um, we'd be pulling transcripts. So just like Alex Murdoch's credibility is forever gone and stripped away, so is so is Agent Owen. So it's you know it is important for law enforcement to. I mean, it's one thing you're allowed to lie to a defendant to get them to admit to things under our rules. You're certainly not allowed to lie under oath ever. And from an appeal perspective, the question becomes, would they have secured that indictment in the first place without those lies? Don't know. I mean, that's, that's what the appellate record will look at. Um, you know, normally in a case, you, an officer is supplying probable cause to a judge to obtain a warrant, let's say for an arrest, and that can be challenged if they're not being truthful to that judge or if they withheld you know, evidence of some somebody's innocence. But here, you've got some lies that help secure the indictments they went forward on. It's, a, it's part of the appeal package. It's probably one of the reasons that the director of SLED, just back to Agent Owens, I mean, he got up today and gave his second press conference ever, he said, in the history of being director of SLED, and it had a lot to do with probably trying to defend his agency from some of the things that Agent Owen was doing uh, in terms of the mistruths and then some of the things that were brought out um, by the defense to demonstrate they didn't do their job the right way. And you know, just what springs to mind to me is the lack of preservation techniques for the Maggie, the victim's phone, which could have revealed a whole lot of her GPS. I mean, that's really problematic um, and so I think Mark Keel felt like he had to get out in front and basically double down on on the agency its credibility its integrity and he also said listen anybody associated with anything having to do with Alec Murdoch helping him with any crime you're going down and we're coming for you so he he was pretty robust in his challenge to anyone associated with Alec Murdoch that is doing anything criminal um. <clears throat> Sorry. How are your allergies? I know. They, we are in South Carolina. For those of you who are not familiar with South Carolina, this week we got hit hard uh, with uh, pollen. Everything is green and yellow. And yes, I do. I do have a little tickle in my throat and my throat is sore. Um, it is not COVID. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so 
a lot of people are talking about how they're, you know, the jury did not take very long to come to their decision. Um, and that it almost seems as though they had made up their mind before even having all of the facts, perhaps. Um, can you guys talk about like the weight of that just in the, as systematically for jurors to, you know, maybe make up their mind early? Well, they have a, a very difficult job because they heard about literally 100 crimes. They heard about a murder case and 99 financial crimes. And so the state cleverly was able to get in under all that evidence, which typically is not allowed by claiming its motive that he had this impending storm and the only way to delay himself a little bit from his thefts to be revealed was just to inexplicably killed most of his family in cold blood. So that allowed them, and that was a huge legal battle that Judge Newman ultimately ruled could come in. And that's why this case was almost six weeks long instead of a week and a half. Because you heard so much financial testimony, they were just inundated with hearing about how this disgraced lawyer stole from people that he had a fiduciary duty of trust to care for he just took their money from the most vulnerable taking money from quadriplegics and looking them in the eye and saying that he's doing right by them so they're not superhuman you cannot dissect that and put it apart as you think about whether he murdered his family you're, you're just overwhelmed with the concept he's a bad guy he's a liar and so I know you want to say something. Not to make you angry. I'll make me angry. But, um, but I mean, it's so it's a short verdict, you know, because they, they come into it thinking he's the worst possible human. If that case is, if the, all that evidence is not there, then you, you think they sit there and they think about, well, sure, he's been, let's just say he's been inconsistent in his own statements to police, but, I mean, he's grieving, you know, I don't know. Maybe he just forgot about being down there, I don't know, but instead of just kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt, they can't, because he is just such a proven horrific theft, liar, manipulator, and so they just, they can't. So, one thing I want to touch upon, so, the, the, the motive evidence came in, all the financial lies, Luke says 99 lies and then a murder case, 99 financial crimes and a murder case, and if any of y'all were listening to the instruction of the law, the charging instruction by Judge Newman regarding the, the motive evidence by the state, which were all these financial crimes, where he got up and, and admitted, I'm a liar in front of the jury, the, the Judge Newman instructed them, now you cannot consider that as evidence that he could have done this crime. You're only to think about it as a financial motive situation to contemplate whether that is enough of a reason for him to decide to kill his family. It's not to show propensity to do the crime. You're not to think that he has his bad character evidence. Um, but guess what? The first juror that popped out of the courthouse today and spoke to ABC News said, you ain't gonna fool me. I heard about all those lies on all the financial crimes. And so I, 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 I didn't believe a word he said. So that juror admitted, <laughs> Ready. he admitted that he didn't follow Judge Newman's instruction not to consider it 
for what, you know, for credibility, or not credibility, but for propensity to do the crime or anything like that. But he did exactly that. Like, the, of course the juror's going to do that. You know, even though he instructed, it's just for the motive to help. The state's allowed to talk about the motive um, to prove that he would have done this to his family. But that juror was like, nope, he's a liar. I heard about all those crimes. Yep, you're not fooling me. I don't believe what he... I don't believe those crocodile tears. It was just snot anyway. So, like, that guy was done. That guy was absolutely done. Um, and clearly, you know, the state's motive theory was meant to strip away the credibility of this guy. It also forced him to take the witness stand. So any of you people out there in the world that you know, are listening and are interested in thinking about legal concepts and, like, even people that are interested and think about well, where's this going to go? Does he have a chance at appeal? What he was forced to do by and this is all three-dimensional chess. So by Creighton Waters and the Attorney General's office making the the case that this is a this is not propensity bad character evidence. We're we're asking you, Judge Newman, to get in. This is our motive evidence, which we're allowed to do under the rules. Um, what that did was forced Alex Murdoch to take the stand. I don't think that was a certainty until those crimes came in to try to regain credibility. But then he had to confess to 99 financial crimes. So not only did he have to take a stand, but he had to confess to other pending charges that he was not on trial for. And so like when the Court of Appeals and maybe the Supreme Court will think about, is this harmless error? Is this, is this really a big deal? He confessed to everything else. He, ha he was forced to do that to try to maintain his innocence on the murder case. So it is absolutely fascinating. Um, we'll all be really interested to follow where it goes in the Court of Appeals and higher. We kind of have the saying in South Carolina that bad facts make bad law, which basically is a way of saying that really heinous cases and bad, bad facts often will have higher judges do some legal gymnastics to find a way to rationalize a major appellate issue as not being a big deal. Luke, what do you think about that? Yeah, I've been on the, on the receiving end of that analysis, but they, you know, ju justices of the Supreme Court and things of that nature are supposed to be insulated. I mean, they're, they have these terms, you know, they're not supposed to be influenced. No one wants, I mean, it's hard to say that, you know, when Cliff Newman is saying the types of things he says today he's certainly acknowledging the international scrutiny this case has and he wants to feel like he's doling out appropriate justice but when you have an appellate system they're supposed to be just looking at the legal issues and you would hope that they would not if there's a clear 404b violation as i think there is here by overwhelming evidence of other crimes wrongs acts forcing a jury to believe that he's a bad guy, therefore he murdered his family, um, then I think you would hope an appellate court would look at that, look at our precedent, look at other cases where that has been decided, and not really do some legal gymnastics to find a way to keep him convicted. I think this case will come back one way or the other, whether it's post-conviction relief. I think this case will be tried again in about four or five years. There'd be a lot of taxpayer dollars that um, unfortunately have been wasted. And I think the state has overtried its case. And everybody gets their blinders on, they get, they're chomping at the bit. The state's perspective, they really want 
He's embarrassed the entire state of South Carolina. He's embarrassed the lawyers. He's given us all bad name. Um, but for that 404B issue, if, if the Supreme Court says yes, that that was reversible error. It should not have been allowed in. It did not allow him to receive a fair trial. Well, then on his retrial, that evidence, clearly they won't try to put that in. And then you have that type of case where it's circumstantial. And now you've got his testimony and that can be used to impeach him if he chooses to testify again. But if you don't have that, all those crimes and wrongs and lying to his, his clients for years, it's just, you take that out and you look at the actual murder case in a vacuum, it makes it more difficult to convict him. So would you all take Alec as a client if he asked? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we don't turn away clients based on what their charges are or how notorious the case is. We will turn away clients that are not cooperating with us, are being openly deceitful with us, um, or just who are, are crazy. But we're not, we would never turn down a case just based on how bad the charge is or how difficult the case would be. I mean, that's what, that's what we do, so. Yeah. Who decides if he gets a retrial? I mean, that's, that is the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. They, okay. they literally say, you know, whatever air, whatever issues are presented to them. And so he's right now he's got a, a, a question to decide. Who are his appellate lawyers going to be? There are some lawyers that only do that, and they're very good at it. Our appellate defense system in South Carolina um, has fabulous attorneys. There are also some pretty good ones in private practice. So he has to decide that. What are the best legal issues that have been preserved? A lot of legal issues can be there, but, it, you know, there's a legal issue, a great legal issue in closing arguments where both prosecutors, and particularly John Metters, said that you can infer malice based on the use of a deadly weapon alone. And that is just simply not the law in South Carolina anymore. It used to be. Um, but the law has evolved, and there's a case called Bernadette that says that you can't do that. Malice can be inferred. It can be from his actions, his words, what he does, his state of mind, but it's not simply by pulling a trigger. And Jim Griffin should have objected and, and moved for a mistrial, and he didn't. So that issue is there, but it's not preserved because he didn't raise it. Um, now that might be part of the ineffective post-conviction relief package. But so, but the things have been preserved are the 404B financial crime evidence. They are um, particularly the roadside shooting attempt to kill himself evidence. That's a very well-established issue that it really can only come in um, if you know, there's a real tight nexus to the underlying offense that you're just so guilty that you want to end your own life. They won that battle. Newman wasn't going to let it in until they claimed he opened the door, Jim Griffin. And I don't think he opened the door. I think he had a right to talk about the payments to Cousin Eddie because the state was allowed to address that during their financial crimes case. He wasn't talking about the roadside shooting. So I do think that is a mistake. Either way, it's a, it's a mistake by the judge if Newman said you opened the door when you didn't. Or it's a mistake by Jim Griffin and it's post-conviction. So, but ultimately the Supreme Court will decide that's who's going to say, hey, you get a new trial for XYZ issue. Or, guess what? Conviction affirmed or 
various reasons, but I would not be surprised if there was a new trial. And then you talk about an expensive transcript. I saw some people talking about that on social media today. You had a, almost a six-week trial. Um, that's going to be like a $50,000 transcript. More than that. So More than that. But if it's a... If, well, if it's appellate defense, then they're going to get that for free. Um, more state resources. More state resources. <clears throat> Will the defense be able to successfully appeal under the 404 rule, and could you explain 404? That's just what we were talking about. Okay. That's probably his best <laughs> legal issue. There's a rule, 404 governs evidence of someone's character. The 404B specifically says... You are not to introduce character in a trial of what they call other crimes, wrongs, or bad acts, um, unless there's an exception for motive, state of mind, accident. So if someone says, man, it was an accident, and he had like 10 other cases of this accident occurring in the exact same way, well, yeah, that's eligible. So you can't just say someone is a terrible person, a liar, a thief, to smear someone's character so that they just look so bad that the jury hates them. In this case, the state said motive. It never really panned out. True motive that even, and I'm biased, I'm a defense lawyer, I will admit my biases, but I like to think I can be objective. A, a true exception to motive would be if Alec Murdoch had taken out life insurance policies on Maggie, on, on um, Paul, and got him for $10 million Friday before the killing, and then they got killed. Like, yes, that would be slam dunk evidence that he needed money, he had to kill them, he had to make it seem like a tragedy, but just 10 years worth of stealing and, and kind of saying that this was building to a head, and to say that you, you had to kill your most trusted and loved family members with no evidence to the contrary. Again, state witnesses said he loved that son of his dearly. They had a great relationship with his wife. So is it truly motive to kill them just because you got some attention and sympathy? Why not just kill Paul if that's your, you know, your motive? So it just never really made sense. So that would be part of the Supreme Court's analysis. Um, some people are mentioning that uh, Judge Newman seemed pretty biased when giving his sentencing, you know, adding his own, like, commentary. I think he mentioned something along the lines of, you know, that Maggie and Paul will come and visit Alec late at night, and, you know, it was very haunting. Can you all kind of speak to that, whether it be from personal experience with the sentencing from Judge Newman um, or just your observations today? He, that is Newman's style at sensing. He always wants to have a conversation with a defendant that's been sentenced. He would love it if the defendant would ultimately admit to wrongdoing. Um, he said today, you know, in his, his years on the bench, he's never had one do that, but he does like to have a discussion with them. And, you know, I do, uh, you know, this, past year I've, I've watched him sentence a co-defendant on a murder case of mine where he, he said you know you're you know and that guy was basically it was a guilty plea and he was you know saying that he overreacted and Newman did say you know you know he'll be we'll be thinking about him six feet under in the, in the grave you know the rest of your days and 
the Department of Corrections. And, he, and the guy kind of agreed, and Newman said, well, at least you're honest about that. And Newman does like to have a moment with defendants to try to have them, it's almost like a pull back the curtain moment. Um, but Newman, Judge Newman does that a lot in his sentencing. He doesn't like to hear from the lawyers. I mean, he, of course, there's a, a role for the lawyers, but even if the lawyers talk for an hour in sentencing, which we didn't have today, but even if that's the case, he will still strip everything away. And he wants to focus just on the defendant and have a unburden your soul conversation. And if they're not willing to do that with him, he will then talk about the ramifications that they will certainly think about for the rest of their days. And, and over the years, I, you know, I've seen that many times with Judge Newman. He does reference that kind of long-lasting impact, whether it's from the grave or whether they're, they'll think about them at night. And, you know, you heard Alec Mark today say, yeah, they come to me every night in my dream. He, he agreed with Judge Newman on that. Of course, I'm sure his sentiment was, I think about my loved ones that were killed in a crime that I didn't commit. You know, he was clearly smart enough and his lawyers talked to him enough about not having a, a big dialogue with Judge Newman because that could affect the appellate record. If he starts talking about various things that, you know, he could get out ahead of himself. And so, but yeah, Judge Newman likes to do that. He, you know, he uh, did a pretty notorious trial a couple of years ago. It was the Uber the fake Uber killing in Five Points in Columbia, South Carolina. One of our good friends, Tracy Pennock, represented that guy, Mr. Randolph, I believe his name was, or Rudolph Randolph, I think. Um, and that guy kind of had a real reaction and was kind of loudly saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And, and I think even that guy's mom kind of was preaching the same thing and he basically shut them all down and said, no, no, you're not. You're, you're essentially a monster. Um, so he will have those moments. That's his purview. That's his discretion. Um, he's really interesting in plea court. He likes to have long kind of discussions with defendants about tell me what, tell me what you, what you did. And so, you know, Luke and I, whenever we're doing a guilty plea in front of Judge Newman, we kind of have a special conversation. We say, listen, this is not your everyday judge. He's, you know, where you just get to say, are you guilty or not? I'm guilty, okay, accept the plea. He, he likes to say, listen now, tell me what you did. And so that can be, that can really trip up uh, defendants sometimes. So he's, that's a unique facet of Judge Newman's, the way he, he operates on the bench. I agree with all of that. <laughs> but I think he, this is his last year as a judge. He's retiring, he's kind of that mandatory retirement age and I think he's fully aware of this being his last major trial his moment in the sun to tell this defendant um, this pariah of our community how he really feels and so I think he is a little more gratuitous than maybe even normal and that's his right and I'm sure um, probably most of the world really enjoys his take on that um, but he he's always been that way to an extent in terms of little cat and mouse and, you know, he did make a comment in his 22 years as a judge that he has never had anybody come forward after a guilty verdict and be like, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. And I've been thinking about that today. And I think I did have a case where that occurred. It wasn't a murder case. It was a burglary first degree case. And I 
was representing an old school criminal, longtime drug user, consummate burglar, and he was accused of stealing a woman's purse out of her window. And so that's a burglary first degree, which carried, uh, it was at nighttime, um, 15 years to life. And we did the trial. We didn't have a, I think his offer was 17 years and didn't want to take it. He was an older gentleman. And so, but we lost. His fingerprint was around the window. And the purse was found in the yard. And he, the client was old school, very proper, light. Testified that he, his fingerprint was around the window because he was, it was under, it was getting painted and he's a painter and he is a painter. And so he walked up to the painting crew who was inspecting their work and asked them if they need any help. And they said no. And that's how his fingerprint got on the window. And it was weird. We had an inconsistent verdict. They found him guilty on the bird first, but not on the petty larceny for the theft of the, the purse, which was again, an interesting jury dynamic because that was the element of committing the crime therein of the burglary was taking the purse. So they clearly were doing some weird stuff in the jury room, but Newman did his cat and mouse thing with this old school criminal. And Newman said, how long have you been using drugs? And how long, how did it make you get to this point? And I was a much younger lawyer, less experienced, didn't have my client just being quiet for appellate purposes. And the old school criminal said, it's been a long time, Judge. And, you know, I, I get high. And I, going vendors and I start stealing and you know I just had an opportunity here and couldn't pass it up judge and it's been, it's been a demon haunting me for so long and they had this great like you know now I'm mortified by my performance but <laughs> but they had this great dialogue where Newman kind of got a feel for him and kind of a little bit of sympathy and you know acknowledgement this is a old school criminal who has this terrible addiction. He's not did your client take a stand? He did. He did. Um, and then Newman, though, rewarded him in his sentence. He could have given him a life sentence and he gave him 17 years. This is exactly the offer that he turned down. And so, of course, the guy wasn't going to appeal that type of good sentence. Newman had got enough out of him where he wouldn't have a successful appeal anyway, but he didn't. He did reward him for that. Newman probably doesn't remember it um, because it wasn't a murder case, but I certainly remember it. Um, anyway. Um, <clears throat> can hardly read my own handwriting. Um, what are, what's y'all's take on no victim impact statements? I, I just think because it's the murder of a family, and not only a family, but it's a family that was very close to, you know, Maggie's side of the family. Apparently they all, it wasn't like a traditional in-law system. I mean, they were very close together. And, you know, it, I, you know, the, the state would say, well, we're, it's just very sensitive. And, you know, but my understanding is that, you know, Buster is a statutory victim. He, my understanding is that Buster had, had an emotional collapse outside of the courtroom after sentencing um so that's being reported we're also getting reports from various networks that even maggie's side now after hearing the case and these are like from respected journalists that are talking to people after the trial are saying that maggie's family after hearing the evidence don't believe that alex really did it 
And so if that is truly the case, then that would be a reason that there wouldn't be any victim impact. And I refuse to participate. Right. I mean, that could be the case, uh, which would be very unique because, yeah, having no victim impact is the kind of extreme, rare situation on a case like this. Normally, you would have all of Maggie's family, her, her living relatives, sister, parents, they would be talking about their feelings. And so that was a, a real extreme rare moment today. And if the reporting that we're hearing from these journalists is accurate, then it would seem likely that they don't believe in the conviction and don't believe that he did it after hearing the state's case. Um, so maybe that's, that's what's going on. So two jurors uh, at some point in, during deliberation gave in and switched from their original thinking of not guilty to guilty. Can you all kind of tell us with your knowledge like what that might have looked like in the deliberation room? Luke, I think you're especially suited to talk about this. I think you need to also talk about how a defense lawyer who excels in empowering a jury would be talking to a jury in a closing argument. Well, you do have to empower a jury to be bold, to do their duty, to really deliberate. And, and they have a duty to deliberate. They do not have a duty to give up their own personal moral judgment on this evidence. So part of good trial work is to make them insulated and comfortable and strong in their own beliefs. Because once they get back there, I imagine they're as soon as they get back there, they're going to start having a show of hands, guilty, not guilty. And, and the reporting is it was nine guilty, two not guilty, one undecided on the fence. So the nine are just going to start ganging up on the other three and saying, we're tired. Haven't you heard all his lies? We've been here almost six weeks. You know, it's us against you and you're outnumbered. And so it really takes, it's a numbers game. And, and what are the odds that those three are going to con convince the other nine or convince some of those so you start sifting through evidence you know it becomes a game of you know we're going to prove to you why he's guilty and you know shouting matches occur it's very you know i always like to talk about the 1950s movie starring henry fonda called 12 angry men i reference that a lot in my closing arguments and it's a classic movie about a murder trial and at the end it starts with just all about the deliberations you know, and they raise their hand and everybody's guilty but Henry Fonda's character, who of course is the hero, and he asks them to deliberate, to look at the evidence, to do their duties. And he begins to kind of convince them one by one about why there's reasonable doubt. And what does that mean? And we can't just, you know, get caught up and use our passion and prejudice to convict. We have to look at this case very logically and with reason. And so that's what you want, but that's very hard to get, particularly if you have, you know, several weeks worth of financial crimes and lies and things like that, just totally unrelated to the murder case. So there's they those three jurors got beaten down, and it took three hours to do it. And you know, if you have someone of extreme will who can resist pressure of a of a serious nature, then you might have a hung jury. But Clearly they did not, they were beaten down, and 
it didn't take very long, all things considered. So that's what you get back there. There's a lot still left unanswered, specifically, you know, the blue polo that Alec was wearing in the first video, some of those clothes, um, and murder weapons. Talk us through like what that would look like if those things were discovered. Because you hear a lot about people who are maybe sentenced to life in prison, and then you find evidence, you know, a decade later <clears throat> that reveals something totally new. Sure. So there is an after-discovered evidence kind of analysis. I mean, let's say, you know, some person, um, you know, decides to confess to doing the crime, and here's where the shotgun is, here's where the, the blackout is, you know, it's, I buried it in my backyard, and I did it because whatever reason, you know, that would be a major issue where, you know, the higher courts would get involved and, you know, it doesn't happen like that. You have to really kind of develop the evidence, have a hearing and try to convince a judge on the matter. But that would, that would be, I mean, there is stuff like that can happen. I mean, there's evidence that gets tested, latent kind of discovered evidence with someone's DNA on it. But like, let's say they sell Almeida uh, Almeida in three years, let's say Alex's mom passes and they sell it and they, you know, end up finding some piece of evidence there or something like that. I mean, and it's got the blood of someone else on it um, or, you know, or the DNA of someone else all over it. Um, it could help or hurt him. Right, right. right. Mm -hmm. If it's buried by you know, the stump of a tree right behind one of the outhouses of the smokehouse in Almeida, and it's wrapped up in a blue tarp, <laughs> and it's got, like, the clothes he was wearing earlier that day, and a big, you know, just covered with a perfect sample of his DNA that shows that he put it there. Well, that clearly would be very bad for him. <laughs> but if it's... If, if a Blackout 300 is used in a drive-by sh shooting in Bluffton, South Carolina uh, next month and some gangbanger has it and he ends up saying, I got it from my friend. Who got it from Cousin Eddie. Or, <laughs> or, you know, who stole it, you know, or who stole it from this rich white kid at a Halloween party in 2018, then, like, clearly that would be very helpful. Um, so... I don't think we're ever going to see that evidence. Yeah. The piece of evidence that I want to see right now that should have been available is Bubba's <laughs> GPS tracking collar data. I don't know why it was brought up by Jim Griffin during an examination if we weren't going to see it. Yeah. I just knew we were going to see it. Somebody right now who's got Blanca's got Bubba apparently. I mean, I don't know if it was just like written over or something was not right, but you think the state or the defense would have tried to get it if it was humanly possible. I would have been extremely interested to know the movements of those dogs right around the killing. I think that would be super revealing. Um, we'll finish with two kind of last things. So let's say hypothetically that yes, this, this is retried and you all are brought on as the team to represent Alec Murdoch. What would your angle be? Because I know that we've infamously, maybe not infamously, but famously uh, floated the Ozark idea that Alec Murdoch knows who killed Maggie and Paul. He got in too deep. 
drugs were crazy. He was washing money. Luke, I'll let you kind of take take the reins on this one, but ultimately circle back to how you guys would kind of approach this case. Well, number one, it'd be very difficult to get a jury together that hasn't heard, been yes. influenced, biased. You'd That's have to have question. the most rigorous jury selection process that South Carolina provides. Well, you also know what theory doesn't work. Now, the question is, <laughs> if all that bad evidence of thefts, what we call 404B evidence, was not in, would this theory that was presented in this case work? Maybe. Um, but I think that there would be likely, hypothetically, if we were his lawyers, we'd be having very hard talks about 50000 a week is not for oxy. Jurors can sniff out lies. If this is about being truthful, as long as it doesn't put the guns in your hands, it's worth a shot. Um, I think we'd be trying to flesh out things like that. But the problem is, because he's taking a stand under oath, it's baked in, and if he has to explain some Ozark-type theory, he'd have to take a stand, and now you have a whole trial's worth of him lying. Mm. So it makes it very hard, very, very hard. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with Cousin Eddie. He's not going to get the benefit of testifying. He's probably going to get a pretty hefty sentence. And then it's five years down the road and he's not represented. I'd be very interested if Eddie has something to share. Yeah. So there's a million different angles on it, but it's a, whoever, if it comes back, whoever gets the case, it's, it's still a very difficult task. Perhaps more difficult than it even was. Yeah, okay, and last, we'll end on this question. Um, the egg lady, I, I must have missed this. There's obviously so many things happening at once, and it's hard to really digest all of it. Um, there's apparently something going viral with a juror and eggs. There's being songs made about it. Can you all, what's going on? This is the juror that was <laughs> kicked off the day that the jury got the case. She was kicked off early in the morning because there was information that she had been talking to people about the case, deliberating before she was allowed to. And whether that was she was trying to talk to jury members before they were allowed to talk about the case, or whether she was trying to talk to court personnel about the case, but she got ratted out and SLED you know, interviewed her and she admitted it, but apparently she had brought brought some eggs to the jury room that day, which is kind of weird. Um, maybe she was gonna share some, maybe she has, you know, chickens on her at her house and she was gonna share some eggs, but it, it is. Maybe she likes a hard boiled egg and just smashing them right there. <laughs> I mean, she had 12 eggs, which makes me think she had a carton of eggs. I just don't know, but she, yeah, she will forever be known as the egg lady in this case. Mm -hmm. And it's also being rumored that she was a, a not guilty vote. Right, and right. So that um, the defense really lost the egg lady at a bad time in terms of their case. So we had that happen to us on our double murder. We lost a juror right before the deliberations. <laughs> I thought you were about to say they brought a dozen no, eggs. It's like, so is this be, a thing? No. I, uh, I mean, there's no telling what they do back there, and they're all bringing their quirks and weirdnesses <clears throat> into the... What's that song by Chris Cornell? It's like Spoon Man? Spoon Man. So this would just be like Egg Lady? <laughs> egg Lady. 
Um, all right. Well, I think we'll um, we'll end it here for tonight. In 30 minutes, these guys will be going live on WLTX um, to talk more about Murdoch. Um, and we've had a lot of you guys so kindly uh, share that you would like to see us continue to do these lives. Obviously, the Murdoch content will kind of begin to dwindle um, as it, there's less coverage of it. But these guys have a load of stories to tell. <laughs> so We've got a lot of interesting stories, and we also have some kind of renowned trial lawyers that we are friends with and have done some pretty important cases around the country that we yep. look to, to bring in. And I also think it would be a good idea to take anyone that follows us, if they, if they want us to be looking into particular issues or covering certain issues, or even have a take on a particular issue, and we are well open to having any kind of content that you guys would like us to discuss, um, and we'll... We got takes on things. We do have yeah. takes on, uh, on Bring the Jury. We have takes. Yes, absolutely. So if there's any, you know, cases that you're interested in, um, want to reopen a discussion about something that's happened in the past, years ago, um, they've got great guests, great connections. Also just hearing about some of, some of their experiences and stories as trial uh, lawyers. Um, this has been Bring the Jury episode 10, Woo. I believe, 10. Um, thank you guys so much. As always, we really enjoy doing these lives, and we will see you all very, very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>